The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 10th chapter. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he was shocked, and everything, and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. The Gospel of the Lord. Y'all can be seated. So, I don't know about y'all, but I have some real clear ideas about who I am and what I'm about. And, and I think one of, the, one of the joys, I was talking about being a young adult, and one of the things about being a young adult was uh, that it was always a time in transition, and it was a time of struggling with my identity. You know, I, I was struggling with who am I and what am I really about? What things do I still believe that my parents taught me? What things am I let, ready to let go? What are the lessons that I learned in school and church and in all these places that I'm going to carry with me? Or what things don't fit with my new adulthood and all this newfound knowledge that I have? Because remember, part of being a young adult is thinking that your parents are dumb and that you're very smart, Right. And it's, it's amazing how much smarter my parents got as I got into my mid to late 20s. I don't know what they did, but whatever they did was some great self-improvement. It was pretty impressive. But identity, really, even though by the time we get into our late 20s and early 30s, we were done struggling with some of the who am I, what am I about, what do I think kind of junk that we go through, you know, identity is still a big thing that we kind of struggle with, isn't it? We... We struggle, for instance, one of the things that I remember about my early 20s or late 20s when I got to seminary was Lauren, my wife, and I were standing outside smoking a cigarette because we were smokers back then. And it was dead winter in January and Lauren was sick. And every time she took a drag off of her cigarette, she coughed and hacked up a lung. And I felt like I was starting to get sick. And every time I took a puff on the cigarette, I felt like I was going to cough. And something kind of hit me. And I said, this is stupid. Let's quit. She said, when? And I said, right now. And I put it down. And I wish I could say it was that easy. And I, I put the, the pack on the shelf where it always went. 
And every time I wanted a cigarette, I walked over and I said mean things to it because I wanted to be stronger, right? But I found that really what was addictive about it for me, certainly the nicotine was nice. But the thing that was hard for me wasn't so much the nicotine, but it was the identity that goes with being a smoker. Because back then we had smoking sections in restaurants. Where do you want to sit? The smoking section. Who do you usually hang out with at work? The other smokers, because we all went outside. You know, and smoking was not just this thing you did, but it was a community of people you belonged to, right? And so the hardest thing for me was breaking that identity piece of being a smoker and becoming a non-smoker. And one of the things about being a smoker was always we were suspicious of those non-smokers because they always want to take our, away our places to smoke, right? And it, it's just that's one of the things that we find in a lot of places in our lives. There are things that we just absolutely build our identity on, and if they get taken away, it shakes us to the foundations. You know, one of the things that I've always done as a pastor and before that as a chaplain was most of my, most of my time is spent in the car driving from place to place. I'm a good driver, I'm a safe driver, but I'm also a human driver, and in July I wrecked my very first brand new car that I've ever owned in my life. And let me tell you, all of a sudden, two seconds after thinking to myself what a safe driver I am, oh look, what's that bright shiny thing out the window, smash, you know, all that went out the window, and with it, illusions of safety illusions of the general sense of invulnerability that we all kind of have. We understand that bad things happen to people, but those are other people, right? You know, we understand that crashes can happen so quickly, but they happen so quickly to the other people who have those things because I'm a safe driver. You know, or health scares. You know, you go to the doctor and get the wrong news one time, and all of a sudden your identity shifts from being a healthy person to being a sick person. Or floods. You know, how often do we hear from the weather people that, you know, it's going to flood and this is going to be the storm of the century and it's going to rain and we're going to have all kinds of rain and everything's going to go to chaos. And, you know, it's been since, what, 1987, 88, since Hugo came through. And so we've had almost, what, 20 years to, no, almost 30 years, wow, to, to get used to the idea that the weathermen always say these things, but are they ever right? No. And so we hear, we're going to have the storm of the century. And I'm like, I'm going to go to Beaufort because that's where I was going to be. And it turned out that being in Beaufort was not a bad gig because Beaufort sits in a little notch along the coast and all the big storms pass, pass by and they haven't been hit directly by a hurricane or major weather system in, in like 100 years. And so my wife called me because she was back home and said, Eric, it's raining and you're on the coast and I'm so scared. And I'm looking out the window and saying, well, it's kind of drizzling a little bit here. You know, and, and Sunday, as I was getting ready to leave St. John's in Beaufort, I took a picture of a dry spot in the parking lot and sent it to my wife, thinking, ha, 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 this is funny. And now I had planned a safe route home. I went up 321 and caught 26 in Gaston. So, you know, I, all, the, all the way home, I skirted the edge of the storm. And then I crossed the bridge on 26 going over the river, and I saw how full the river was, and I started to realize this is a lot more real than, than what I was imagining. You know, and 20 minutes later, they closed the bridge on the interstate. So if I had been much later, I wouldn't have made it home that day. You know, and then I, I saw a post from friends on Facebook, and a friend of mine who's kind of sarcastic like I am was saying, oh, there's water in the street, ha, 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 hashtag flood of the century. Oh, there's water in my, in my driveway, ha, ha, ha. 
Oh, the water's up to the bottom of my mailbox. Ha ha. There's three inches of water in my kitchen. This isn't funny. I'm standing on my truck and I'm waiting for the boat to come and evacuate us. You know, and, and you hear story after story about that. And, you know, driving through Coldstream and driving through Pine Glen and driving through all the, all the neighborhoods in, in the area that have been flooded out and seeing the devastation and seeing people's lives turned upside down and, and seeing what it really brings, all of a sudden this is a lot more real than I want it to be. And, and you think about, first of all, how fragile things are. And second of all, you know, all these people are all of a sudden discovering that, you know, the things that are important to us, yes, they're important, but what is real and what really makes me who I am? Is it my stuff? Because I, I don't have the nicest house, but I, I like my house and it's mine, you know. I, I drive it now, now that my, my insurance kicked in, I drive a nice car again. And it's, it's nice to drive a nice car, but I've driven cars without air conditioning. And, you know, like you were describing earlier, you know, we, but my car isn't who I am. It, it's nice to have money in the bank, even though we haven't experienced a lot of that because either my wife and I have been in college the entire time we've been married. But, you know, the, my bank account isn't who I am. Who am I? What am I about? And we have today in the gospel, this rich man who comes up to Jesus and says, what a lot of rich people say. And we have to put this in context because I think right now we think rich people and we think those people who have mansions, those people who have multi-millions or billions of dollars, those people who have everything they've ever wanted. But really, if you want to think about what a rich person is in the Bible, what, is, what does it mean to be rich compared to the lifestyle of first century Palestine? We are the rich people. And being rich isn't just how much money do I have in the bank, but it's I'm good enough and smart enough and competent enough to hold down a job, right? We all know people who don't have those gifts or that ability. We're, we're lucky enough to be able to have a house we call our own or one or two cars or enough food to eat. You know, these are the things that are rich because we're talking about a region where people really were afraid of whether they had enough to eat on a regular basis, People who live in a place where the weather changing really affected their lifestyle. And yes, we had this little pocket of time for the next couple of years where it's going to affect us and people we know. But pretty soon, within the next couple of months, most of us are going to go back to forgetting that this can happen, right? And we're going to go get back to our lives because it takes a lot of energy to worry, right? When we think about what it means to be rich, being rich really means that you can live your life and not really have to worry about where the next thing is coming from because one way or another it's going to be taken care of. This is wealth. And part of being a wealthy person is being able to have confidence in myself. And so when the, when the rich young man walked up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? It wasn't a trick question to set Jesus up to say something wise. This was a real question because he's someone who lives in a world where I give this much effort and I receive this much reward, right? Where when I do this, I expect this to happen. It's this transactional relationship of faith where I follow the law and God rewards me. There was a, there's a pastor on TV, what's his name, like Creflo Dollar, and he was saying, God wants to reward me with a jet, and certainly he got a jet, but I have a feeling that's not exactly what God meant, right? But his identity was wrapped up in this idea that I can do these things and I will be rewarded. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people like me, right? 
And Jesus said, well, you know, you know what the commandments say? You know, don't steal, don't kill, don't covet, don't do this, don't do that. And the man says, well, I've done all these things, thinking probably that he's good to go. And Jesus says, well, if you've, if you've done all these things, then sell everything you own and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And, you know, I, as, as, a, as a person who, by my definition, is wealthy, you know, I hear that and that's scary because I say I'm not wrapped up in, in my house in terms of who I am, but part of who I am is a guy with a house. You know, I, I say I'm not wrapped up in my car or my bank account, but part of who I am is a guy with a car and a bank account. And, and Jesus is not only saying, sell everything that you own and give it away, and at least giving this guy control over where it goes. And I know this never happens at St. Michael's, but at some congregations over in Lexington, people will give money and then expect to have a lot of say in what happens in the congregation because it was my money that made this happen. You know, it, and, and even, even money that we give away can be a means of maintaining control because that's part of our identity too, isn't it? That the money I spend gives me the privilege to control things. Jesus even took this away. He told him what to do with his money. Sell everything that you own and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. And we say that in the New, in the new Revised Standard Translation that the man was shocked. But, but really the word is something more along the lines of greatly grieved or, or sorrowful because he realized that what Jesus had asked of him, it was something that he could not do because he was so wrapped up in who he was as defined by his own definition of who he is that he wasn't able to do the thing that he needed to do to stand in the definition of what Jesus says is a good person. And I, I kind of hear this in two ways. One of them is the one that lets me off the hook a little bit. Because Jesus is asking the guy to do the one thing that he knew he'd never be able to do. Give up all your stuff. Give up everything you know about yourself. Give up everything you know about life. Take up your cross and follow me. Is really what this is hearkening back to. That being someone who follows God is someone who's willing to take up their burdens and lay them with God. The other thing that I hear in this is the thing that doesn't let me off the hook. Because I recognize that there are a lot of things that I am that I use as part of my identity that I just am not willing to let go of. You know, I, I have a really frightened feeling that when I get to be retirement age, I'm going to take off my alb for the final time and I'm going to lay my cleric down and I'm not going to know who I am. Because being a pastor is a big part of who I am. And, you know, down to what people call me in public, Pastor Eric. And there's part of me that says, am I really old enough to, for people to call me that? Because I still feel like I'm young, even though my, my beard tells me daily that I'm not as young as I think I am. But, you know, that's, that's a huge part of who I am. You know, and, and we all have those things in our lives that when we lay them down, we, we are left stripped of our identity. I... I hear, I hear people who have lost their spouse say, I was married to them for 60 years. I don't know who I am without them. You know, that's, that's another more positive way to understand our identity, right? It's not all just negative stuff. I'm a, I'm a parent. What am I when I'm not a parent? I'm, a, I'm an employee of a company. What am I when I don't have a job? You know, I, and, and we have a tendency to define ourselves by what makes us useful. 
And what Jesus is saying to the young man that I think rings true to us is Jesus is saying that our worth does not lie in our smarts, in our wits, in our competency. It doesn't lie in what we're able to do. It doesn't lie in what we're able to make happen. It doesn't lie in our plans and ideas and schemes. Our worth is found in the waters of baptism. And there is nothing that we can do to earn it. There is nothing that we can do to gain it. There is, there is nothing that we can do under our own power to receive this mercy and this love and this grace that God gives us. And at some part of my heart, this is the most offensive thing I've ever heard because I am a good American and what I give, I ought to get in kind, right? You get what you pay for. There's no such thing as a free lunch. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we earn what we get. And we have Jesus telling us that there is nothing that we are able or capable or competent to do to earn the love of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I have a feeling for a lot of us, this news is just as hard as some of the flood news. Because at least if I can earn it, then I don't owe anybody anything, right? The, the story of the rich young man is something that, that works at my heart every time I hear it. Because it reminds me of what we talked about in Sunday school that Martin Luther said, we're all beggars. We are all beggars at the, at the foot of the cross. We are all beggars of the grace of God. We are all people who come to God with that same need that we cannot quench, that money cannot fill, that hole in the soul that no house and no bank account and no car and no job will ever quench because it is a God-shaped hole and the identity that is ours through the waters of baptism is the only thing in our lives that will ever fill it. So, so what's that mean for us? How does, how does that call us to be when we realize that not only can't we earn it, but the very things that we would have to do to get it are things that we're not willing to do? And that most offensive of all, the only thing I can do is rely on God's grace to give it to me. What, what's left at that point? And first, I'll be honest and say this is something that I struggle a lot with because I am typically a pretty competent guy. I am used to being good at things about the first time I try them. You know, it's, it's, I am not used to having to try really hard in order to be good at things. And so it, sometimes it makes me a little bit lazy. But so there's that conviction there. But there's also that joy that we realize that I am not alone in this boat. We all are in the same place, beggars at the foot of the cross, relying on the mercy of God. And for the first time in our lives, it gives us an opportunity to recognize something that really is one of our deepest fears, that at the heart of things, I really am alone. That at the heart of things, there really is no one who understands me. That at the heart of things, if somebody knew what was really in my heart and what really went on in my mind and was what was really going on in my life, that there's no chance anybody can love me. We realize through the cross that this is one of the lies that we tell ourselves because God sees our heart, God sees our mind, God sees our lives and loves us and calls us and claims us and names us beloved through the waters of baptism and reminds us 
that in the waters of baptism, we are not only not alone, but we have a big family. People who have promised to stand with us in our good times and in our bad times, to support us and to love us and to bear us up. And when we have times like this, where, where floodwaters have come and reminded us that a lot of our really comforting lies are not true, that we're not as safe as we think and we're not as secure as we think, and that what we have isn't as long-lasting as we think, that it could all be washed away in a few minutes. What we're left with is the good news that I see on the news and the good news that I see on Facebook and the good news that I hear from friends that people have taken off from work and people have taken time away from their lives to go into the flood-ravaged areas and help to clean out houses and tear down sheetrock and tear out carpet and chop up trees and take more bottles of water than you know how to weigh and more food than anybody knows how to eat. And all of a sudden, where there was hopelessness and despair and people who were rocked to the very core because the things that they use as their identity been swept away, it is replaced with the knowledge and the good news that there is a community of people who care and who will support us, and we are not alone. And when the waters of the floods and the disasters in our lives are ravaging us and leaving us wondering and doubting and wanting, the good news that we hear is that God is with us in the flood. God is with us as we are in the wilderness of our lives. God is with us in our doubt, in our shame, in our pain, in our brokenness, in our hopelessness, in the places that we call hell. God is planting the cross and saying, this is where my new life begins. This is where my kingdom starts. This is where I claim my new, new ground. Because where we are broken and where we are weak, God is strong. And Jesus saw the young rich man knowing what was going to happen because he'd probably seen people like this before. It took him more than a few tries to call his 12 disciples and it wasn't the first time he'd been turned down. And Jesus loved him. Jesus saw his heart and loved him. Jesus sees your heart and loves you. How this week as we leave this place are we going to reflect that love into our families and into our workplaces and into our communities? How are we going to be mirrors for the good news that the people around us are people who are named and claimed and redeemed by the waters of baptism? That even if those waters hadn't touched them yet, that God loves them anyway. That's what our call as the church is, to be the mouth and the hands and the feet of God's love song for the world. How this week can we accomplish this? Amen.